I, I do truly hope that you take, a, take some time before the service, before they're gone, um, to let them know you'll be praying for them. I talked to Rick and Sharon plenty of times over the last couple of years and understand that you know, while they, they really do truly need financial support and they're grateful that New Hope is supporting them, it's one of the things that your finances go towards when you give your offerings here to the church is supporting our missionaries around the world and the mission work here in the Lansing area. Um, but most importantly to their heart, and I, I believe this is very sincere, they're asking for prayer support, and they really would enjoy and appreciate knowing that you're supporting them with prayer. So let me encourage you to do that. Catch up with them before they leave today to remind them that you will be. Okay, stepping over into Revelation. First of all, congratulations to you that you actually showed up today knowing that we were doing Revelation, <laughs> especially after doing it for 32 weeks. Um, we're coming into the very last few weeks of the teaching of the book of Revelation, and this morning we'll be in chapter 18. We have been through some remarkable territory over the last 32 weeks of study in looking at this. If you've missed any of them along the way and you want to get caught up, you can go to the New Hope website. They're all on there. You can also go to iTunes. They're all on there and get caught up and brought up to speed where we're at in the teaching if you've missed some. But the journey that we've been able to take along the way has been one that has really strengthened my walk. I hope it's been the same for you. Um, I think back to this very moment when we began. I'm standing right here and telling you that we're on the midst of a journey um, way back in November of last year and that this Revelation journey was just part of the Destiny series. If you were here in the very beginning, we started out with the destiny of a man, looking at the life of Abraham and how God called him apart. And we stepped into the destiny of a nation, looking how God called Israel apart, and now looking at destiny of the world with the book of Revelation. Through every part of it, I've seen this remarkable story unfolding in which God is constantly evidencing himself in something that's remarkable, and hear me on this, we're getting to do something that we won't be able to do again in the future. By that I mean this. God caused John to write this down when he's a prisoner on an island, the island of Patmos, a prisoner of Rome. He writes down all this documentation of future things, and we get to see through his eyes things that are going to unfold here on planet Earth that we as the church won't be here to experience. These are things that we could observe from heaven, but if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you believe in the rapture of the church, the taking away of the church, like I teach here, then you're getting to read something that's going to happen without you being present, but you get to be informed of it for comfort to your heart. And it's also there as a warning to unbelievers of this is what's going to happen, this is how it's going to unfold. So we learned last time where we stepped off in Revelation 17 that Babylon represented in Revelation 17 world religion, false religion, false global religion. And Revelation 18 that we're going to look at this morning is the world financial system, the world financial markets and how they will collapse in these last days. So if you have your Bibles this morning and you want to step into uh, studying it along with us word for word, uh, open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 18. And I'm going to invite you to pray with me for just a minute as we step into this that the Holy Spirit would really give us capacity to understand this. It's a complicated chapter, and I want to explain to you how we're going to do it in just a minute, but first let's pray about it. 
God, what we're about to look at, um, we understand, was written through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit as a, a revelation to the church. And you gave John a remarkable experience. And these things that were written down 2,000 years ago that we are continuing to see unfold before our eyes, it is amazing that we get to live, first of all, in this day and age and see how this is all coming together. But Father, we also recognize that not only is this here for our fascination, but it's also there to encourage us. You would not have had it written down if you didn't have a purpose. So we believe, Father, that you want to speak through the text. We ask as we read these words that are written and we understand what's going on in the world around us, that you would give us a capacity to see how it applies to each and every individual life here in this facility. This time that we're setting apart, God, is for you, and we ask that you would use it to strengthen us in our walk and give us an understanding of how we would apply these principles to our life today. God, we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. That I underestimate God scares me. Strong statement. I could soften it by saying, um, I'm fearful of God. But what I really mean is that I underestimate God scares me. Because the things that I hold dear, the things that I value, and I do mean material things, God does not value. As a matter of fact, he says the very nations that we're part of are nothing to him. Now, mind you, I'm not talking about the people, I'm not talking about individual souls. Let me show you a passage on the screen. Revelation, Isaiah 40:15. This was written long before Jesus by the prophet Isaiah. The nations are like a drop from a bucket and regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. The scales we're talking about are the scales of justice. God's got the weight and balance measures. And the nations that we're part of are nothing but a speck of dust in God's sight. So insignificant, so trivial that this world system that we're part of means nothing to him. You understand? A drop in a bucket. We're not even talking about pouring the bucket. A dribble of a drop. Look at how it goes on. Isaiah 40, 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. One thing has come out to me in the study of the book of Revelation. Consistent understanding that God in the last days will have the last word on human enterprise. He reserves the final word, the final judgment for himself. And he's telling us that everything that we're part of is going to fade away. As you're going to see in chapter 18 this morning, There's going to be a collapse of the world's greatest financial empire ever known to man. And I want to explain it to you in the way that you can understand this in comparison to the fact that we used two words. Revelation 17 called it Babylon false religion. Revelation 18 calls Babylon world finance. So it's used twice, two different ways. Chapter 17, Babylon false religion. Chapter 18, Babylon world finance. 
But we're going to take on big chunks of Scripture. I'm not going to do it the way I normally do it, in which we go verse by verse by verse by verse and take it apart. This morning we're going to take on chunks because we're going to do the whole chapter and we're going to read right on through it in sections at a time. So open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 18 and verse 1. The first thing you need to know is that Babylon that's mentioned here is most likely an actual city, a global city someplace on planet Earth. According to the understanding here, there's five descriptions for Babylon, and every time it's referred to as a literal city where goods are traded, where finances are traded, where commerce takes place. Uh, Whether God intends to see the actual ancient city of Babylon become the world center, we don't know. It's under construction today. It's being rebuilt in Iraq. Whether or not that's the actual one, we don't know. It could be New York City. It could be London. Have no idea, but I believe we're looking at an actual city here. With the destruction of this world's last greatest empire, with the collapse of it, sets the stage for the return of Jesus. Next week, when we look at the text, we're looking at the second coming the literal blazing clouds return of Jesus Christ. And this chapter that we're going to work through this morning sets that up. So John hears four voices in this chapter, and the four voices give four very specific announcements. And the four announcements, the four voices, are the voice of condemnation, the voice of separation, the voice of lament, and the voice of celebration. And as we work through it, you're going to see each of those come up again. You'll understand why, what I'm referring to in just a minute. So let's take on verse 1. The voice of condemnation is the first one. Revelation 18.1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality." So John sees another angel, separate from the one in chapter 17, the word allos is used, meaning another of the same kind, and it's coming from heaven. Now when I study scripture, I look at it and try and take it apart and understand, okay, this guy's coming from heaven, he's not a guy, he's an angel, coming from heaven, and it says he has great authority, the word megas. We understand from our earlier study, megas is huge, so he has huge authority. So I ask myself immediately, Who gave it to him? Who gave this angel the authority? And what is his objective? Why does he see him? And what's he coming for? Well, we understand he left the presence of God. He's coming on earth. And he's coming in the midst of a very dark time. Do you remember the fifth bowl? Thinking back to the fifth bowl, the angel dumps it out. And there's blackness on the surface of the earth. Everything on planet earth goes dark. And this angel is illumined, it says. The word is fotidzo. It means a flash. With brilliant flash, he appears on the world scene. And everyone can see him, and he's got a powerful voice. And it's awesome, John says. It's a powerful sight. Forcible. No one will be able to ignore him. And he announces this. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. 
Now, if we understand that Babylon is the financial system, this warning, fallen, is talking about fallen world religion and fallen world finance. You'll see how this unfolds. And it explains why. She has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. The word prison that's used there is fulake, and the word actually means a watchtower. So vultures, ravens, owls are on this tower watching over this city as it collapses, and it says that demons are hovering over this city, waiting for the collapse, part of the financial system, and Scripture explains that the world has become drunk with the success of this global empire. The Antichrist is so successful at establishing this world financial market, everyone becomes drunk with its success, becomes overwhelmed with it. We find a description of how desolate this becomes from the book of Isaiah. Look with me on the screen. Isaiah 34.11, talking about Babylon, but pelican and hedgehog will possess it, and owl and raven will dwell in it. So like vultures... Over this megas city, these birds of prey waiting for the collapse of the city, the cause is given because Babylon has seduced the entire world. So this empire is vast, and its tentacles reach into every part of the world, the entire planet, Moscow, Beijing, Paris. Any nation you can mention, any city you can mention is part of this world global empire. And this is what your passage says. All the nations are drunk with the wine. Kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. Merchants of the earth are rich by her sensuality. Okay? So that's the cause for the fall. The next voice that John hears is the voice of separation. The second one. Verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So another voice, another of the same kind, the word alas is used again, but with a different message. Come out of her, my people. Speaking to who? Believers. We understand that during the tribulation, during the seven years, the last seven years on planet earth, people are going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. But apparently some actually move into this mega city and become part of it. And God says, come on out of there. Don't compromise yourself. Don't participate. Don't become part of the world system. And that verse right there really spoke to me because of my proclivity and every one of us, because we're humans and we're materialistic, to become part of the world system as opposed to listening to God calling us out from us. We are not to compromise by joining forces with the world. That's what Scripture tells us. Don't get caught up in the world system. Look with me on the screen, James 1.27. Brother of Jesus wrote this. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is, at the end of the verse, to keep oneself unstained by the world. 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Remember God's message to Lot all the way back in Genesis 19? God's about to destroy Sodom. And he says to Lot, get out of the city. Come away from those people. Don't be part of that system. Same thing here. Genesis all the way to Revelation. Come apart. Why? Because their sins are piled up as high as the heaven. The word piled is kolos. 
and it means glued together. Their sins have been stacked like your fingers interlocking, piled up as high as the heaven. Verse 6, Pay her back, even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds in the cup which she has mixed. Mix twice as much for her to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensually. To the same degree, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire for the Lord God who judges her is strong. Pay her back. The Greek is actually double the double, meaning going back to the Mosaic law system in which we learned probably if you grew up in church, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That goes back to the Mosaic law. So when someone offended someone, when they took advantage of them, when they paid back, they had to pay back double restitution. That's what this is talking about. Double in the sense of completeness. And in one day, her plagues will come meaning this will not be progressive. This will be instantaneous, a one-day collapse of the world financial system. That's what's explaining here. So instantly it's destroyed. Complete devastation. Look at the words that are used. Pestilence, mourning, famine, burned with fire. Why? The very last verse says, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. Job understood that. Job wrote about that. Look with me on the screen. Job 42.2 I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah said it also. 14.27 For the Lord of hosts who has planned and who can frustrate it? And as for His stretched out hand, who can turn it back? In other words, when God sets His mind to do it, nothing's going to change His plans. Everything is purposed and foreordained, and so he lays it out. Now John hears the third voice, the voice of the lament, or what we would call wailing. Someone who cries not in a little whimper, but wailing loud. Look with me at verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensually with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Now watch and see how detailed this gets, because this is a fairly long passage, but it's very specific about what's going to happen. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her, because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble. This is part of the reason that theologians believe this is an actual city because of the great detail this verse has here. Verse 13, and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. Okay, stay with me. Verse 14, the fruit you long for has gone from you and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, 
weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, she who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and every sailor and as many as link their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out and weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. Nothing so clearly reveals the hardness of people's hearts like this, a lack of sorrow over sin. Think with me back over what we've studied in Revelation. From the fourth week all the way to the 16th chapter, continually it says, men harden their hearts against God. Plagues, loss of family members, loss of air quality, loss of water, sun, moon, and stars. Everything's gone, and yet this is what they choose to mourn over, their world financial system. Is that not amazing? No mourning whatsoever for their sin, but mourning over the world financial system. And it says they did actually an ancient thing. They gather dust and they throw it on their heads. That was the mourning of someone who lost a family member, someone who died. They would throw dust on their heads. That's how great their grief is. They're grieving over the loss of their finances. Throughout the entire tribulation, people are refusing to repent and turn back to God. But when their money goes, they cry over it and they weep and mourn. Because why? All their hope, all their security, all their identity, everything that makes them who they are is wrapped up in the world financial system. It says it's a great city, meaning it's the crown jewel of Antichrist empire. It is a literal city, and in one hour, its judgment comes, and it shocks everyone because it's so swift. It amazes people. Verse 20, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. This is why I said, God scares me. This verse says that heaven is rejoicing over the things that men are crying over. The proclivity that we have to attach ourselves to materialistic things is so strong that people are wailing over it. And God's saying, rejoice over it. It's been destroyed. It's been wiped out. Heaven has a different perspective than the people of earth. The moment of vindication, the moment of vengeance arrives, and heaven rejoices because the triumph of righteousness. It is absolutely amazing to me. So look with me at verse 21. This is what wraps it up. Then a strong angel took a stone like a great millstone. There's the word great again. Megas, it's a huge stone. And threw it into the sea saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters 
will not be heard in you any longer, and no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer, and the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer, and the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer, for your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. When I'm working through this passage over the last couple months, and particularly in the last couple weeks, I'm remembering back. You don't have to be more than 12 years old to remember this. When the Twin Towers fell in New York, the attention that the world gave to the collapse of just two buildings stopped everything, did it not? Everything shut down. I actually walked my sons outside on 9-12 and said, guys, Look at the sky. You'll probably never see this again in your lifetime. Not one entrail cloud from a jet. Nothing. Nobody's flying. The world stopped. That was two towers. Now, the grieving was great because of the loss of life, but what was attached to those towers? Global financial system. Now, step back with me to 2007. Stock markets at 11,000 points, the Dow, In five days, it goes to 10,000 points. It goes below 10,000, and pretty soon, the world banking system realizes we may have a meltdown on our hands. We've got to stop this. So things kick in motion because many global economists said, three more days of this, and you may not be able to get money out of the ATM machines. So the world governments get together, especially the United States, and decide there's going to be a way to bail this out. Now, if we watched in the last 10 years simple ways in which the global economy can stop life on planet Earth, and everyone begins to hesitate and say, what's going on? This is describing a total global collapse of the financial system in the last days. Now, John sees this last angel, another angel, pick up this mega stone, huge stone. You understand a millstone when it's described from archaeology, we understand they're about four to five foot in circumference, in diameter, and about one foot thick. And they were used to pulverize grain at the mill. So they would spin it around in a circle, grinding the, the, the grain into powder. This is talking about a mega stone. And he sees it symbolically, and he says this really strong angel picks up this huge stone and flicks it into the ocean. And as quickly as the stone disappears into the sea, that's how quickly Babylon will disappear, the world financial system. So it says it's so complete, it's so violent that there will be no more normal activities. Look what the list is. No more music, no one working, no one preparing food. No more music, the sound of harps, musicians, flute players, no one working, the craftsman of any craft, no preparing food, the sound of the mill will not be heard. Completely devastated to the degree that it actually says the light of a lamp will not shine. Modern theologians look at that and say, hey, that's an EMP. We're talking about electronic magnetic pulse. They've wiped out electricity. I have no idea and I can't back that up. That's what many people are looking at and saying. That's, that's modern warfare. It's been obliterated. The city's been wiped out. This is how verse 24 ends it. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. So this angel is summarizing the reason for the destruction. 
because of world religion, false religion, and because of world finance, people through the the generations, through the centuries, have been executed because of their name for Christ. Think only back to the time of Rome. Rome executed Christians because it was a threat to their world financial system, the power that they held through the Caesars. Think only of recently how people are being killed around the earth because of their claim for faith in Jesus Christ. Most recently, over in the Middle East, people who name the name of Christ being killed because they name Jesus Christ as something other than the way that they believe. And so it's a threat to their religious system. So this is why this angel is summing it up. In her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. From the time of man's beginning, man has been killed over global religion and global finances. And so heaven says, rejoice. Now, I find this really fascinating that God makes global finance the last thing that he takes out. Think with me. Air quality, water quality, plagues, boils, stars, sun, earthquakes. And the last thing that he reserves to remove is man's little eggshell. I've got this investment portfolio. And that will protect me from everything. And it's the last thing God takes. And he rips it from them. Meaning, you can't serve both God and money. That's what Jesus said. You you can't do it. So John, here's this last part. I want to help you wrap this up appropriately. And so we're going to look at chapter 19 just briefly because it sets up the second coming next week. And there's a little bit of an explanation here in which John and everybody in heaven begins to rejoice. Look at this last voice that he hears, the voice of celebration. Revelation 19.1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice and a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So he hears this something like a great voice, a megas voice, and it's angels, millions upon millions of angels, and it's deafeningly loud. And when John hears it, he says, it's, it's something like a great voice. And they're saying, Alleluia. We've been saying the word Alleluia wrong for generations it's a Hebrew word, alleluia, and it actually means praise to God, the hallel, yah, hallel, yah. Hallel means to praise, yah, God. Praise to God, hallelujah, and he hears it for the first time in the book of Revelation, let alone the entire New Testament. This is the only place it occurs, and it occurs four times. Praise to God, why? Because of the imminent return of Jesus. And we're talking blazing clouds like Jesus described, coming back in great power and glory as you're going to see next week. So heaven is anticipating, whoa, the last thing has fallen. Babylon has collapsed. Now it's time for the return of the king. So look at verse 2. Because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants, Verse 3, and a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever, which means it's permanent. 
There's no more rising up again. This is a permanent, irreversible judgment. This rebellion that started all the way back in the Garden of Eden has been dealt with. It's finally ended now. And the fallout of human depravity has been conquered. That's what's being explained here. Verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sit on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah, the third one. And verse 5. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying the fourth hallelujah, hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. What's going on here? You're singing. That's you right there, his bondservants. There is a day if you name the name of Jesus Christ, you're going to hear that phrase Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants. That is a literal statement. There's a voice from the throne. You're going to be standing in heaven, and you are the bondservants. I am the bondservant. That's all the people who have been redeemed on the earth, all the believers. So first you've got the angels, millions of angels who are beginning to say, Hallelujah! And then this voice from the throne says, Hey, you guys, kick in! And the crescendo begins to rise. And it gets so loud. How does John describe it? He says it's deafening. It's like the sound of many waters. It's like thunder. Cool. That is amazing. And what are you going to say? Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Fourth, hallelujah. Verse 7 wraps it up for us. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. If you lived in first century Jerusalem or if you lived during the time of the earliest church, that statement would have profound implications to you. The marriage feast that we have today is not anything compared to what it was like in the first century. As a matter of fact, the marriages that we celebrate today are very different from what they celebrated. When we get invited to a wedding, you get the invitation in the mail, you come in the front steps of the church, you come in and sit down and watch a half-hour ceremony, and maybe go to the reception afterwards that could last two to three hours, and it's over. For them, this was a lifetime event. As a matter of fact, the first stage called the betrothal stage started when they were little children. Rick and Sharon, when they were first born, their parents would have come. Rich and Ray would have come to Kathy and David and said, let's make a contract that our children will get married. And you wouldn't have any say in it whatsoever, okay? And I'm sorry to use them for an example, but here they are in the front row. So if you sit in the front row, I'll use you, okay? So they're in this marriage contract if they lived in the first century that their parents had arranged. It was called the betrothal period. And during this betrothal period, all the preparations would be put in place. The contract was signed. It was binding. If they wanted to break it, they actually had to get a letter of divorce. Now, it stepped from the betrothal stage, the first stage, into the second stage, which is called the preparation. And the preparation took place in the last week of the wedding. And it was seven days long. 
And at the beginning of the preparation stage, during the time of festivities, the groom, Rick, would go over to Sharon's house where she's living with her parents and knock on the door and say, I'm ready for my bride. I want to take her to this place that I've prepared, bringing her to the place of festivities where they're going to celebrate the vows. And the festivities were a huge banquet. And the dads had to literally empty their wallets and everything they had to pay for this. It was all part of the town. The entire town celebrated this thing called the festivity or the preparation. The third stage is the most significant stage. And that's the part where the vows are actually exchanged. And the entire town watched this take place. And at the end of the vows taking place, a final meal would come. And it was called the marriage supper. This marriage supper here is being referred to in the same way. Because the church has been betrothed since the beginning. When Jesus died for the church and claimed them for himself. And then he said, I'm going away, but I'm not going away forever. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I come back, I will take you again to myself. That where I am, you may be also. That's the preparation stage. And then we find Jesus taking the church away and presenting them to the Father, the beginning of the festivities. And so the angel says, you're blessed if you're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's how it ends in verse 9. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Did you notice two really important words that are used there, though? That she's going to be dressed, the bride, meaning the church, all of us, in fine linen, bright and clean. Clean is kathros, translated pure, and bright as lampros, meaning illuminated. Can you imagine living in the first century and seeing someone completely dressed in white? Now think about this. It's an agrarian society. They don't have washing machines. There's no tide. There's no era. They have to go to the creek to wash their clothes. So they wear dark clothing. Seeing someone dressed in white was like, wow. And not only in white, no spots on the clothing. Spotless. So the bride, Sharon, would come to the wedding ceremony dressed in this brilliant white clothing. And the groom, Rick, would be watching for his bride to come through the door. Have you ever been to a wedding where you haven't seen the groom just bust out in smiles when his bride comes around the corner? It's a beautiful picture. Scripture is using the symbology here to say there's a day coming when the bride, the church, is going to be presented to the groom. And it's a marriage supper. It's a celebration. And you don't want to miss it. So if you indulge me for just a minute, I'm going to take you back to my own childhood as I wrap this up. It became really poignant to me this week. I was thinking back to all the games I played with my brothers, all the football, all the baseball. We made our own bases. We took Meyer shopping bags, paper bags, and filled them with sand so we'd have bases, first and second and third, and we'd slide into them, rip the bags open, all the sand would come out. But We'd play hour after hour. The best ones were in the summer evenings. My dad not home from work yet. The crack of the bat, you could hear it across the field, and dad would pull in the driveway, and we knew it was supper time, but it wasn't really supper time until dad said, come on in, it's supper time. So when he called us, we knew that we had to go in and prepare. 
So we'd run into the bathroom and we'd begin getting the soap out and we had lava soap in our house, if you know what that is. My dad worked on cars a lot. I didn't know there was anything other than lava soap until I was a teenager. I didn't know soap wasn't supposed to hurt. <laughs> it's really grainy. So we're washing and we'd come out and sit down to the table and no one would start eating supper until everyone was around the table. So when the last person sat down, the supper began. The question I have for you this morning is I'm thinking back over that time of being a little kid out cracking the baseball bat and my dad calling, come on in, it's time for supper, getting cleaned up and sitting around the supper table. Is are you prepared for the supper of the Lamb? For this marriage supper? For the time when he's going to call us away and say, come on, go into heaven together. I'm taking you there to present you to the Father. And the only way that happens is if you're in relationship with Jesus Christ. The angel understood that this was such a significant moment. Look how he ends it in verse 9. These are the true words of God. He's saying to John, everything you've just seen, everything that's just happened, I'm stamping it. These are the true words of God the Father. That's a significant statement, church, that God will be in personal relationship with you for all eternity. Astounding for me. At this point in our study, the religious and the economic system is gone. Where we step into next week is the return of the king, and he comes in a blaze of glory. Don't miss it, okay? Make sure you get in on that story. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to join here together this morning and not only participate in communion and lift up our voices in song, but to study your word together, to look at the things that were promised are actually going to happen. And you've never lied to us. Everything that you've said would happen has happened in its own time. This is no different, Father. So we believe that your words are true. We look forward to the time when we hear someone call us to praise and worship you. And we together say, Hallelujah. Father, we look forward to that day, but for now, we live in the midst of this world. So we ask that you would take the principles of the things that we learned this morning and embed them deep in our heart. That we very quickly will be in our cars and driving away or off onto other activities. God, take these things and cause us to remember them and to calculate how sincere we are about our walk with you. That we not deviate to the left or to the right that we not become entangled with the things of the world, but that we set ourselves apart for you. God, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week.